Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at Reconditioning HQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Matt Shearer. Matt is the Senior Vice President, General Manager of Under Armour's Canadian Business. He's been the Under Armour with Under Armour since 2001 has been played a major role in elevating the brand on an international level. In 2003, he opened and established the brand's Canadian subsidiary, and in 2009, added the Americas region, including market responsibility in Mexico, South America, Australia, and New Zealand. In 2012, Matt relocated to Amsterdam to become vice president of EMEA, where he was responsible for restructuring and managing Under Armour's European businesses. He returned to Canada in 2014 to resume responsibility of the Canadian business, as well as oversee Under Armour's outdoor division. In addition to his Canadian responsibility, he has since been elevated to oversee UA's North American operations. As an athlete, Matt played professional lacrosse in both the National Lacrosse League and Major League Lacrosse, as well as playing for the Canadian National Lacrosse team. Matt currently lives in Toronto with his wife, Liz, and two children. I am pleased to have him on the show today. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, you're a Toronto boy, and I know you moved off to go to school in the States, but growing up in Toronto, um, you know, most kids in Toronto get attracted to playing hockey. You got attracted to playing lacrosse. What was the, what was the differentiator for you? Um, I, I, I don't think it was an either or. Uh, early on, I was uh, just always around sports and that from, from everything growing up, but hockey and lacrosse were probably the, the biggest uh, influences on me from a sports perspective played uh played hockey for about 19 years um you know all while playing lacrosse so lacrosse in the summer hockey in the winter and just kind of Mm -hmm. put back and forth between the two and um i think it was hockey was probably what i had had first started playing and then through you know some friends that you know would go and play you know lacrosse in the summer as opposed to to baseball soccer or other things i kind of went into the lacrosse thing and um just kind of carried that on um on through uh through life growing up and um yeah, it's just, a, it's something that, you know, to your point, you know, I, you know, a lot of kids grow up playing hockey and, um, you know, I got to, to the point of playing at a, at a, at a fairly good level, but, um, on the hockey side, but, you know, I think I had more opportunity to, to, to go somewhere and, and utilize, uh, lacrosse and, you know, the opportunity to go to school, um, uh, uh after high school to go to, to college or university and, and mm-hmm. play sports was something that, uh, really interests me. Um, and in some areas I had the opportunity to go and play hockey and lacrosse, um, at some smaller D3 schools, but, um, you know, the, the lacrosse was really the, where the focus was and, you know, was very fortunate to be afforded the opportunity to, to go through that as a, as a student athlete. What is, what did playing competitive sport, uh, and maybe even just competitive lacrosse teach you about yourself and teach you about life in some sense as you went through it? Oh, geez. I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's foundational, um, for, for me and, and, and for my life. And I think as, as, you know, uh, the influence it had on me growing up to the influence it had on me as a student going to school to the influences it's had on me as, a um, you know, within business, um, just every part of my life I feel is, is, is kind of ties back to sport and, um, you know, whether that's, you know, largely just around, around leadership, around what that means from, uh, um, you know, being, being part of a team, um, be it in sports, be it in business, um, you know, be it family, um, you know, just being part of that. And then, you know, looking at things around, you know, the, the premise of ownership and accountability and just, you know, whether that's, um, you know, taking ownership of things, providing ownership, you know, to those around you, um, you know, but also holding yourself and others accountable to things. It's, um, all things that come back to, to a team and, 
um, you know, it's, it's just something that, you know, really has, has all, you know, what, what I learned in sports, not just the, the, aspect, the fundamental aspects of playing, but what I learned in sports was always, I think, stuff that I, I realized that there's, there's ways that I can apply that to other parts of my life. And, uh, um, you know, whether it's work ethic, whether it's leadership, whether it's, um, uh, you know, just being results driven, um, you know, anything like that is, uh, is always something that's had a, an impact on me. And I was never the loudest, you know, guy in the, in the, the locker room or the dressing room, but, um, you know, was probably more of a lead by example, you know, mm-hmm. type guy. And, um, you know, it was just, uh, it was, it was about accountability. It was, it was a job to be done and you just, you had to go and get that job done. And whether that was, you know, on the, on the, on the ice, if it was, you know, on the floor playing lacrosse, whether it was as a kid growing up and having stuff that to take out the garbage, it was, there was things that I had to do, mm-hmm. you know, and then into business, you know, there's things that, you know, you put a plan in place and, you know, you got to surround yourself with the right people in order to execute that play. And, if you do it the right way collectively, then, you know, you're successful. So, you know, again, all things in that, that come back to sports, but, you know, I think it's, uh, it's had a significant influence on, on all areas of my life. Did you ever have a coach or a teammate that you look back on that was highly influential in shaping you as you have moved forward in life, like uh, either experientially or just a teaching or something from one of those people? Matrix Fitness is one of the largest commercial fitness brands in the world and one of the fastest growing in the industry. Their equipment and programs are used by athletes and coaches at all levels globally. COVID-19 has changed and will change so many things. During these uncertain times, Matrix's team of engineers have quickly put together its free home workout app and youth at home workout programs. With its launch just a couple of weeks ago, they now have first responders, pro athletes, and average folks using the guide to help them with their daily movement. This is a great example of how Matrix strives to be the best fitness company in the world to serve people and communities is their goal. You can download their free app and see additional resources at matrixtotalsolutionssupport.com. That is HTTPS www.matrixfitnesssolutionssupport.com. Yeah, I'd say at, at various levels, um, uh, you know, I, I would, I remember as a, as a kid, you know, growing up, I was probably, you know, maybe about 12 years old and had a, had a coach, you know, Chuck Lapine in, in playing lacrosse and, you know, just, you know, he was always just, you know, very loud, very positive and, you know, just, you know, always motivating and getting the kids to, you know, to, to do stuff, you know, not just, you know, not, not be standing still and just always move your feet. You always got to be moving and thinking. And, you know, it was just, um, again, whether that was around, being on the floor, but it just, it was a way of thought and a way of, of, of thinking, but you know, that would be one. And then, you know, going up through, um, you know, through, through, through college and playing lacrosse, um, and then into some of the call professional lacrosse that I played, I, I always loved, um, I really enjoyed the disciplinarian, you know, type coaches and, uh, um, my college, you know, times, um, the guy, Don Zimmerman and Dave Cottle were, were two coaches in that, that I'd had in, in, in college, um, but also, um, you know, within, uh, the professional side was, um, Terry Sanderson, uh, on the lacrosse side. Again, these, these are guys that they would yell and scream and tear a strip off you. Um, but it was all for the right reasons. And, um, you know, you saw that with some, some players had a tough time responding to that, you know, you know, they'd get yelled at someone's grabbing their face mask or someone's like, you know, pushing them to do the right thing in a very disciplinary and very stern way. You know, some people get, that can't roll off their back and it kind of gets in their head and, you know, a little bit trouble responding. It actually pushes them backwards. Um, I think for me, I, I always relish that. It was something that, you know, you knew what was right and what was wrong. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. shouldn't be doing that anymore. Let's go back to doing what, you know, being told you go and you, and you move in the right direction. And, but I always just really liked that. It was, it was black and white, you know, with these, with these coaches, you know, very disciplinary and, you know, it was very much a plan that was in place and you stick to the plan. Um, and, uh, and if you run that play, you will be successful. Our sponsor reconditioning is going virtual. The 
reconditioning level one has been turned into a complete online experience. And all the time-tested systems and processes are now available to you in 20 hours of online video modules and two virtual Zoom sessions. Reconditioning is a very powerful language and system of practice that brings the worlds of therapy and performance together in one complete package and helps you deliver the most powerful injury and performance solutions to your clients. Check them out at reconditioninghq.com today and join the reconditioning revolution. If you deviated that clue about it and, um, you know, you very quickly came back into, uh, into the proper direction. So what happens uh, to influence you to go down to the States to go to school? Is that a scholarship opportunity? What, what is the, the influencer for, for your educational direction and finding yourself down in the States going to school? Uh, I think the, the, you know, to be honest, the reality of it was it was probably less educational and it was more of just, uh, you know, the opportunity to continue to play sports. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think it's a a lot more prevalent now um, with, with, with university sport in Canada, but also the opportunity for, you know, Canadian kids and student athletes to go down to the U S as well. And, you know, it's, you know, at that point in time, it wasn't as prevalent this was back in like early, early nineties. And, um, I just wanted to keep playing sports. Like I, I was never the, the model student. I, I did okay. I was, I was an average student. I did what I needed to do to get by, but, you know, probably didn't apply myself in the classroom as much as I did, you know, on, uh, uh, on the lacrosse field and lacrosse floor on the ice. And it was, um, it was just something that I always, that, that that's where my passion was. And mm-hmm. I, I wanted to continue doing that and knowing that there was an opportunity to do that. And, I had solicited some opportunities in that with various schools and had a, a couple of, 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 of lukewarm in that opportunities. And, um, you know, eventually there was uh, an opportunity that came up with, um, a, another gentleman that, you know, was up, uh, from up here and he'd been going to school in the U in, in the U S in Baltimore and he had given a coach, my name and went down on a recruiting trip in, in the fall actually. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of toured around the school. Everything was great. And said, yep, you know, you got in, you want to come to school? Sure enough, two weeks later or three weeks later, I was packing a bag and went down and started a university career in, uh, in, uh, in January of, uh, 93, I guess it, it was. Um, but it was something that, uh, yeah, it was never, it was, it was about sport and, you know, realizing that, um, over time that the sport is what helped me to get through school mm. because you had to have a certain, you know, GPA level in order to be eligible to play lacrosse and in order to you know maintain that gpa level i had to apply myself accordingly and make sure that my grades were at a certain level because if they weren't i, I couldn't play it that was the priority to me it was not school you know i studied ended up studying psychology not to be a psychologist or anything like that it was more just for, for doing something that i thought i would enjoy mm-hmm. and if it was something that i would enjoy i would apply myself that much more and um but it was all based uh it wasn't a, a uh, an opportunity to play sports um around my schooling, it was to go to school around playing sports. And, um, that was just, you know, the, again, very fortunate opportunity to do that. And, um, you know, was able to kind of come away with a a great education and great experience and, you know, being that far away from home, you know, I think helped develop a lot of independence, um, you know, and just being in that team environment, I, I, I spent as much time, um, on the lacrosse field as I did in the classroom. And, uh, I think just being amongst a group of people and in a team environment, again, as we mentioned before, the influence that that team environment has had on my, my life as a whole, um, you know, I, I just, I, I, I credit a lot to just, you know, being able to be a student athlete was, uh, I, I couldn't have gone, I, I look back and then I probably could not, I would have trouble, had trouble going to school, um, just to go to school, just to get up and go to class every day without being a student athlete and having that as kind of my rudder, uh, to keep me going straight. So do you, you continue obviously to play pro lacrosse after your college degree and then you play for team Canada. Is that what rolls out for you career wise or? Yeah, I think the, um, the first time I played with team Canada was in nine ninety two. So that was just as my, my college, um, time was starting. And then, um, you know, I had, had played for them for, uh, for a few, uh, a couple of the world games, but, um, on the, once graduating from, uh, from, from college, um, was drafted to, to play in uh, the NLL and ended up playing in, in that league for about 10 years. And, 
um, again, just afforded me the opportunity to continue to play sports. You know, it wasn't, uh, you know, obviously a lot different than, uh, you know, the other professional sports leagues, you know, there's not multi-million dollar contracts. It's, uh, you know, you were making, uh, you know, majority, if not all, you know, of the players in that league had other jobs, you know, whether they were, you know, teachers, they were, you know, cops, they were, you know, you know, a lot of them starting up careers and, um, but they were doing the lacrosse and that on the side. And it was, uh, largely just because everybody had the passion for the game and you're able to do that. You made a couple bucks and that on the side, but you weren't doing it for the money. You were doing it for, again, the team, you know, the being in a team environment, you know, driving results, winning, um, that's what it was about. It wasn't about the paycheck. And, um, but yeah, it just afforded me the opportunity to that for, um, you know, for 10 years and, um, similar time frame in and around the late nineties, they'd started up uh, major league, uh, major lacrosse league, uh, was a field lacrosse league in that, that a professional field lacrosse league that had started up similarly had been drafted in that and got a chance to play in that for, uh, for a handful of years. And again, you know, any opportunity that you could kind of connect to, to sport and, be hanging out with, you know, with, 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 with buddies and, and friends, teammates, you know, it was, uh, it was something that, that was the kind of the, has always been a priority in my life is surrounding myself with, you know, like-minded people. Cool. So you, you, I don't know if it's kind of just, um, coincidence, but you're, you're in Baltimore around Baltimore at the same time that Kevin Plank starts Under Armour in 96. Um, do you, how does the, confluence of you connecting to and becoming a part of that business happen is that because of your being in lacrosse being in baltimore being what's the what's the connection point there uh, a little bit of all those things um you know i'd uh as i was was as i was graduating or as i was in school um you know we had played against um the university of maryland and uh uh, one of the guys that I played against who had, uh, had gone to Maryland was a guy by the name of Kip Falks. And, um, as we'd, uh, uh, graduated, we played against each other. So we kind of knew each other through, through school, but then afterwards had, uh, both played in the NLL, had been drafted to play for a team in Baltimore within the NLL drafted and played for, you know, uh, a Baltimore team within this major league, uh, major lacrosse league. And he and I just got to be good friends and we're hanging out and, um, he had graduated again from Maryland, which is where uh, Kevin Plank had, uh, had gone to school as a walk-on football player and uh, had graduated there. And, um, and Kip wasn't someone that they were necessarily close, I believe, during college, but had met, had met knew each other through college. And then afterwards, um, uh, Kip was Kevin's first partner uh, in Under Armour. And, uh, back in the, the late nineties, you know, Under Armour started in about 96 when Kevin had first started it up and Kip being his first partner, um, I was good friends with Kip. So we'd go out and, you know, go for a drink. We'd go to the bar, we'd be tailgating at Ravens games. And, you know, I'd met Kevin and got to know these guys just in a social environment and, you know, was playing lacrosse and, and different things. And, you know, at some point I figured I've got to get, you know, some type of job or, you know, whether it be due to a lack of a visa, lack of income lack of job, I'm probably going to have to, you know, go back to Canada, which at the time I wasn't quite ready to do. So, you know, I was kind of needle and kip just to say like, Hey, you know, why don't you guys, you know, help me out, get me a visa, you know, work visa, I can come and do something with you guys, you know, selling some t-shirts with this, you know, the company that you guys are starting up. And, um, you know, it was something that, uh, good friend, he was very supportive of it, but as also as a good friend, he said, I don't want anything to do with it. You go over and talk to, you know, to Kevin and, a guy, Ryan Wood, who was, uh, you know, one of the other, uh, Kevin's other partners. So I talked to them about things and, you know, kind of came on er early on and, um, you know, just, you know, as a, as a salesperson and started, uh, you know, peddling t-shirts around, you know, the likes of Baltimore. And, you know, the first job that I'd actually had with them was managing our, uh, uh, our Japanese distributor. So, um, you know, spent uh, a few times a year back and forth from Tokyo and was getting this, this, you know, kind of distributor coached along and getting them, helping them get their business set up. And, you know, uh, shortly after that, you know, being a uh, kind of the, the token Canadian or token non-American, they, they said, well, what about Canada? Like we could get something set up in that in Canada. So we set up a distributor in that in Canada early on. And I basically split time managing a distributor based out of Toronto and, a, and one based out of Tokyo for, for those two markets. And eventually more and more of my time was spent in Toronto, you know, getting, uh, looking after the, uh, our partner in that there. And, you know, as the the brand continued to to grow and started to catch on, just you know, with with such close 
proximity to the border, you know, things were kind of starting to be known and, you know, had to, to coach our distributor through a few things as far as making some investments and some people and some inventory and some marketing. And, um, you know, as, uh, as, as we went on and that stuff wasn't happening, made the decision to kind of take things back in house and, and remove the distributor and, you know, went back to Kevin and said, listen, you know, we're, we parted ways with the distributor, but you know, there's opportunity to, to continue to grow the business. You know, we can either a set up another distributor or we can set it up ourselves. So, um, he kind of afforded me the opportunity and said, well, you did whatever you want to do. You either go get a distributor or figure out, figure it out. Um, so we set it up that way and figured let's remove the middleman, set up a subsidiary. And, um, I started coming back and forth, uh, back in 2003, uh, and ended up setting up, uh, our subsidiary in October of 2003 and came back up and crashed on my parents' couch for about six months while we found an office and started hiring some people and setting up shop you know, back then and, uh, you know, spent uh, a number of years then building up the team and the systems and process and partnerships with key, key wholesale partners and kind of built the business up there, but always drafting off of, you know, you know, what would Kip and Kevin do as, as, you know, as we were starting the similar things up, you know, how do we do this in Baltimore? And it was just a, a case of copy paste and applying it through the Canadian lens, um, when setting up the Canadian business. When you look back in the early days, like uh, I remember, I distinctly remember being with the Habs in 2001 when Under Armour started coming in the dressing room and there was guys wearing it sort of alternatively to what was stock in the space. And you were kind of hearing of this new company that was up and coming. And I'm just wondering when you look back in that time, what, where did the nuts come from in the sense with you guys that this was something you could do in the grand scheme? Cause you had the, the powerhouses, the Nikes, the Reeboks, the Adidas, all these companies. And it seemed almost surreal that somebody would try to um, wedge themselves into that marketplace. And yet Under Armour did, and you guys have obviously done an amazing job of doing that. What, what gave you guys the confidence or the belief that this was something you could actually make happen? Um, I think it was just consumers, well, probably largely it was consumer response and, um, you know, and a focused approach to, to how we, how we met that consumer, you know, the, how we met that consumer and applied things through that consumer lens was, you know, early on, it was everything that was about, you know, products that were developed by athletes for athletes, because, you know, you had, you know, whether it was Kevin as a football player, Ryan Wood, his other partner was a football player, Kip as a lacrosse player myself lacrosse player you know other guys that played football at maryland were some of their early on employees it was like kevin just surrounded himself with his friends and his teammates you know that he could trust and and and, and build this thing and then it was um you know so it was a like-minded group that were building you know not just you know pieces of apparel but it was pieces of equipment because mm-hmm. you know back then you know we had uh you know, you had like one page was basically our catalog and, you know, you could look at that. It was, you know, early on, it was just men's product. It was, it was only apparel and it was all compression based apparel. There was no loose fitting product. So anything you saw on a, on a football field in those tight t-shirts, that was essentially our product. And we went along the lines of just apply, how do you apply that through into lacrosse, you know, and how do you, we took that into hockey, but it was a case of wearing something different. You know, you were, athletes were wearing like compression shorts and, and whatnot and that on the bottom, but then they were wearing like cotton t-shirts up top and, you know, then, you know, sweating and, you know, the shirts absorbing all that and picking up, you know, weight that you're then carrying around. Um, you know, whether it was, you know, Kevin's story of going into the, the, the locker room at the university of Maryland and get some of his guys and his team to try this out. And everyone kind of looked at each other a little funny because they're wearing this like Spider-Man uniform, this tight fitting t-shirt. Um, you know, to then some of the relationships in that that he had with, you know, NFL and getting some stuff within these uh, NFL teams. Um, and then, you know, from, from my perspective, I figured, well, if we're going to win in Canada, you know, we've got to, you know, come at this thing through the lens of, of hockey. So as we go through that, it was a case of needing to go and get, um, you know, we went into, uh, into Toronto and went and talked to uh, Brian Papineau and worked with him in order to get some things set up with, uh, um, you know, with the likes of Gary Roberts in that in Toronto and Ty Domi at the time. And, you know, guys that were really kind of responsive to this, you know, Gary, just a, you know, a fitness fanatic, um, you know, was, you know, he, he kind of rallied around the whole story very quickly and, you know, just the, the benefits of compression from a recovery standpoint, you know, just the, you know, lightweight, you know, moisture wicking, et cetera. And, you know, that's, what, that got us in the, in the dressing room and, 
you know, Pappy was, you know, a huge supporter and, and that of ours and, you know, continues to be a huge supporter. And that then helped to branch out, whether it's going in to talk to Pierre in Montreal, um, you know, to, to other, you know, dressing rooms, you know, around the league. And, uh, you know, so we very quickly penetrated, you know, the NHL, you know, dressing rooms. And it was largely through the equipment managers that, you know, afforded us the opportunity to do that. Um, you know, as we, uh, as we ended, uh, you know, kind of going from there, whether it was taking that to the CFL or into the CHL and branching within, you know, relationships in, in the Ontario Hockey League to going out West and Quebec. And again, it was just, it was very, you know, in the room and one player would wear it. Um, other players saw it and they heard the benefits. They wore it. They, tr- they tried it. They got the benefits and it kind of went from there. Other teams saw what they were wearing. Then they started out. So everything was very viral as to, to how it grew. And, you know, that really, you know, the response from the consumer is probably going back to your original question. That's what gave the confidence. You know, mm-hmm. it was a piece of equipment that players would wear and they couldn't just go back to wearing a cotton t-shirt. It was something that, um, you know, they had to, they had to have. You know, and at the time, that's what really helped us in, you know, getting into the NHL. We didn't have a license or anything like that with the league, but, you know, from a player standpoint, that was a piece of equipment. You could tell me what stick to use, you know, I use whatever stick I want to use because it's my tool, it's the tool of my trade. You know, they, they were looking at this as the, their, their base layer, their apparel was, was very similar. Like that was a piece of equipment. So, you know, it really afforded us the opportunity to get into pretty much every room in the league. So you you mentioned you you went to school for psychology. Uh, you're playing lacrosse. What? Um, so you start working with these guys. What do you what do you fall in like with or in love with in terms of your your vocation, your career that you start to really gravitate to? Is it uh, the the t- the team uh, of of creation? Is it the the innovative part? What are the things that you fall in love with and and really keep you in this in this business? Um, you know, I think it's, uh, it's a little bit of everything. And I think, you know, again, the the position that I was in, I was always very, very fortunate to be, um, in all aspects of the business. So, you know, when, you know, when I first set up the Canadian business, you know, it was, it was me, I was, I was one person and I'd come up. So I'd be calling on the accounts. I'd be getting the orders. I'd be entering the orders in the system. I'd be packing the orders. I'd be shipping the orders. You know, I'd be putting together the, the 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 point of purchase materials that needed to go, you know, be put in store. So I was the salesperson. I was customer service. I was marketing. I was working with, you know, with, with Pappy and, and Gary Roberts in Toronto. Like I was the marketing guy, you know, so I kind of played all these different positions. And then, you know, over time, you know, as, you know, we were able, we started building up, you know, functional responsibility within the team. And it allowed me to then sit, you know, I want to say above because I'm not a, I'm not a hierarchy type guy, but it allowed me to sit in, in, in a coach's chair, you know, mm-hmm. in a GM's type chair. And it allowed me to really develop over the years of very much an operator's mindset. And, uh, uh, to this day, I, you know, I, I, I think I'm pretty good at running a P and L I'm not, a, I don't have any financial background or, 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 or training, um, no formal marketing training, anything like that. But, you know, I know enough to, to, uh, as to how to manage a brand, uh, how to manage a P and L, um, you know, from a sales standpoint, what needs to be done to, you know, in order to, to drive sales, managing relationships. So it's just, it's, it's, it's feeding the connection points of how all those things come together. So you take it back to sports. It's, you know, you can't just put a bunch of people on the, on the ice or on the field and expect to be successful. You need to make sure you've got the right people on the field playing the right roles in the right positions in the right areas at the right time. And they've all got to be working off the same playbook so that they're all running the right routes, you know, et cetera. So that's, that's what I geek out on. That's what I love. That's what I've come to, to love to do is, um, you know, and I, I go back and actually I've never thought about this until I think back to the, the disciplinary type coaches. Like I am a very hands-on leader, um, you know, maybe less, less in the, in the, in the past, in, in recent years than, than I've always been, but I've always been very hands-on, not from a micromanaging standpoint. Like I think I'm a very empowering person, but I like to be involved. I like to, I like to feed the results. I like to be, you know, be, you know, part of the process. Um, but I just, I just, I like being kind of in that, that coach's chair of, you know, kind of setting the, setting the strategy, setting the play, and then, you know, driving, 
ownership and accountability around how we run that play. Matrix Fitness produces training equipment that focuses on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike, with equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in the most efficient manner. Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations worldwide. As a global brand with local support, the Matrix Performance Team assists their customers with solutions, research, and training protocols so coaches can focus on what they do best, help athletes prepare for competition, and get better. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Matrix Fitness Canada for the latest updates around the success stories that document what makes Matrix unique as an equipment manufacturer. What was what was the challenge in going from being the doer because you described all these things that you had to do in the beginning and then obviously the company starts to grow and you start levitating to a more management sort of director type of role. What was the challenge in that for you and how did you adapt? Like what did you have to go through in terms of your own personal growth to adapt to leading people or directing people or delegating to people, which isn't always natural sometimes when you're doing all the time. Yeah, no, I think, um, I think I got, um, it was something I was always very, it was something that was difficult for me, uh, at times because I was always very hands-on. Um, but you know, as I, as I surrounded myself with the right people, um, Sorry, some background background noise here. It's okay. I've had dog barkers in the past in my podcast. It's okay. <laughs> no, but I've got. Uh, I had. It, it was something that was always very hard for me. Was kind of just just letting go in a sense. But as as I continued to surround myself with the right people, there was obviously a level of trust in that that I established with them. So I knew that I could have my you know maybe one hand on and one hand off because I knew that they had. And they had control of it. So it was more of just my comfort of being involved in the process. And there's still a bit of that today, but probably the biggest change for me was um, within my career is when uh, I worked on our European business. And, you know, I'd, um, I'd kind of come through, you know, again, when I went to Canada, I was just, I was a Canadian guy. So we're going to all let that go and do that set up Canada. So I set up that and did that for, for, for four or five years. And then, um, you know, after that, you know, I'd be calling into meetings and, you know, an hour meeting, the last five minutes, I'd be like, oh, sure, what's, the, what's, what's going on? Give us an update. What's happening in Canada? You know, well, this is what's happening. That, okay, well, is that in Canadian dollars, is that U.S. dollars? And all these different, you know, things. I was very much on the outside looking into Baltimore coaching them is to say, like, guys, we need to expand our thought process outside of just the U.S. and American football, and U.S. dollars, et cetera. You know, I said, let's remove Canada from the U S and kind of establish a separate entity. And we were at the time setting up some, some distributors in Mexico and Argentina and Panama and different areas. And, uh, they said, well, that's a great idea. Why don't we remove that stuff? We'll put it all together. We can create the Americas and that you can run and you just manage it out of Toronto and you can run all these other things. So it was kind of like, you know, me being vocal about stuff, you know, afforded me, you know, additional opportunity and responsibility to kind of take on those, you know, so I continued to do that. And, Again, I was always this guy on the outside looking into Baltimore, a guy that had been in Baltimore for a period of time. So I was trusted, but I also knew the brand. I knew the culture to then go and apply that in these new markets as we went into them. Um, as we'd, um, we'd open a business in, uh, in Europe in, uh, in 2006, and um, I wasn't a part of it at, at that time. But when we opened it up, we, you know, we very quick, we were having a lot of success in the U.S. Uh, we had just gone public. Uh, in 2005. And, you know, we went and, and opened up, you know, out of the gate, 26 markets in that within, within Europe. And, you know, we, we jumped in there and we had, you know, very, very quickly, we were getting some success. You know, it was this American brand that was doing so well and came over there and saw some, some initial success. Um, but we very quickly again went over there and we set up sales agencies and marketing agencies and distributors. And in doing all that, you know, we gave a bit of the brand away because we were yielding them the benefit of running our brand in a market, in a brand new market uh, or markets. So as we were having some success, it started to kind of taper off a little bit. And it it wasn't, um, things maybe weren't working to the extent that we wanted to. And they'd made some changes with the leadership and that, that was, was managing the business uh, at the time. And, you know, I'm still running Canada and I was traveling around South America and Australia and managing our distributors there. You know, I got a call from Kevin who was going over to Switzerland 
and he was going uh, to meet uh, a guy by the name of Franz Ulan, who uh, at the time was a CEO of Intersport, you know, which is probably the world's, you know, one of, if not the world's largest sporting goods retailer. And they were based out of, um, based out of Switzerland. And um, probably one of our biggest Intersport customer was, um, you know, through a, a partnership with the likes of Sportcheck. Uh, or the Ferzani Group at the time, which owned the North American license to Intersport. So if we looked at all of our Intersport business globally, you know, the best footprint that we had within Intersport was actually based in Canada. So Kevin's going over to this meeting with their CEO, and he calls me and says, like, listen, you probably know more about their structure, their business than anyone in the company because of what we've done there. Can you come over and just sit in the meeting with me? Just fly on the wall, like, well, we need to build a plan with these guys. I need you to come. So... um, it was actually, it was funny because he said, he said, yeah, you can, yeah. I said, yeah, no problem. He's like, okay, well, you know, meet me in London on Thursday. This was on like a Tuesday, meet me in London on Thursday. We'll go from there and then we'll go into, into Switzerland. We'll have the meeting and we'll kind of take it from there. I said, okay. And this was in October, I think of 2011. Um, so, uh, the only problem was, is when he called me, I was in, I think it was in New Zealand at the time. It was the 2011, it was the rugby world cup. So we were down there entertaining customers in that, in, um, in that area. Um, so I said, yeah, well, I'm in New Zealand. I said, yeah, okay, no problem. Just meet me, meet me in London on Thursday. So I found my way through uh, a number of connecting flights back through, um, you know, back through Vancouver, Toronto, and eventually made my way to London to meet up with him. And, you know, we, we got over to, uh, you know, into the, uh, into the meeting and I came out of it and I said, yeah, you know, they're, they're a buying group. It's similar structure to how we set up in that Canada. You know, you got a country level, you've got, um, you know, a, a corporate level, you know, and, and then you've got an international entity that manages all of these, these people. So, you know, we do this, we do this, we do this, put a person in responsibility for this and this. And he was like, okay, great. So we kind of came away with that afterwards. And then, um, within, uh, you know, within a month, they were asking me to go over and say like, listen, based on whether it's intersport or all this other stuff, we need to restructure, you know, our, our business and that in Europe, you know, based on your understanding of it, can you go over and help do that? I'd never, other than that time, I'd never been to, to Europe before. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, going back to where your original question was from, a you know, the the leaderships that, you know, component that being able to get comfortable, be comfortable with taking my hands off of things. Um, I ended up moving my, myself and my wife and kids. We moved over to, over to, to Amsterdam where our our office was. And this was in, uh, June of, uh, of 2012. And, you know, again, I knew nothing about really the, the European, um, sporting goods market, you know, let alone, you know, the sporting goods market in the UK versus the Netherlands versus Germany, Spain, France, et cetera. So, but I knew Under Armour and, and I knew our brand, I knew what we needed to do. So, you know, I started hiring up people and surrounding myself with experts within HR and within sales and within marketing. And we built up a team of experts that knew the market. And then that's what they brought to the table. I brought the Under Armour stuff to the table. So I was, you know, in a sense, forced to give them the keys to run their functional areas. And it allowed me to then step into that role of being the true coach is to say, okay, we've got position. You've got people that can play these positions. You know, I need to make sure that we got the right people on the field at the right time so that it's feeding the Under Armour playbook. And, uh, you know, so a, somewhat of a long-winded answer there, but that's, I think, was the real breaking point for me is to, you know, kind of separating myself from being a doer into to kind of seeing what's needed from a leadership standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, because I didn't know what, what was needed from a Europe standpoint. I knew Under Armour and, you know, very quickly figured out who played what roles. You know, we flipped sales agents and distributors and, um, and whatnot in-house and we started building up our own entities uh, to things. And, uh, you know, became uh, a lot more focused as to what we did and, you know, spent uh, know, almost three years over there and then made my way back to, uh, to Canada. And um, that's when it really clicked. And I realized coming back into the Canadian environment to say like, wow, like this leadership thing can go a long way. Like, you know, I got to get myself out of the weeds. If I'm doing more of the directing traffic and coaching people and keeping people in the right direction, then um, we can get a lot out of this. Um, so I think that was, uh, that was very helpful just to kind of, to get that. And then, um, the, the thought process and the mindset, not that I was unable to apply to things, it just, it, it evolved, you know, and leadership really became not that it wasn't there before, but it just came a bigger part of, you know, it's kind of my, 
management style. And it's something that I just, I value now is making sure just, you know, that people are in the right place and if people are in the right place, you know, and doing the right things, you know, it's, uh, it puts them in a better spot from a mindset perspective. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of conversation now, you know, I know with us, you know, with Under Armour and, you know, with a lot of companies, you know, we talk a lot about culture, um, you know, and, and, and what is it that feeds the right culture? And, you know, I think if you feed the right ways of working and you, you, you feed the right environment, you know, of, uh, of trust, transparency and empowerment, you know, that's what feeds the right culture. It's not a, a case of, you know, having, you know, a happy hour every week or, you know, going and having a, you know, a, a corporate, you know, softball team or anything like that. All that stuff is great. And, 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 and we do all that kind of thing, but you still got to work with each other, you know, all day, every day. And if you can create an environment where, you know, people love coming in and going to work every day and love the people that they work with in the process and what they do all day, that's going to feed a positive, you know, a positive culture and, you know, a culture where people are going to want to go out. You know, you don't have to schedule happy hours because people are going to be doing it anyways because, you know, they're in a place that they, they love to be. That's awesome. I'm going to use that to pivot. I, um, in a moment I do in my podcast, I discovered a book a number of years ago called The Day You Were Born. And it, com- it was written by a woman named Linda Joyce in New York, who's an astrologer who took numerology and astrology and combined them. And I actually found my purpose in the book. So the way it does it is it takes it each birth period and the, your date and you have a number associated with it. So you're a Libra one and it tells you what your purpose is and then just kind of describes a, th- a few things about your character, so to speak. So your purpose is to take your own path, balancing your need for freedom with your desire for love. Let man be noble, generous, and good, for this alone distinguishes him from all beings known to us, Goeth. Goeth knew that the, to resolve conflict, one must surrender to his most notable, noble side. Goals should have a higher purpose. In Libra, the fruits of fame and fortune leave a bitter taste. They demand too much of one's truth and give little in return. The Libra one must learn to accept themselves and to surround themselves with beautiful art, ideas, and people. The Libra one is charming, magnetic, and a natural lover. The issue here is how and when to take responsibility. They love being surrounded by impossible odds, then proving to the world just how easily those odds are overcome. If Libra ones have faith, they're on their way. If they don't, they're in trouble. They're, they either defy authorities, rules, and traditions or surrender their in individuality to their need for acceptance. A balance needs to be achieved and the peace they desire will be theirs. So I don't know if any of that resonates with you, but... Does, a lot of it does. I, was, I, I, I quickly grabbed a pen. I was going to try and write some of that stuff down. Hopefully you could send that to me after. Yeah, I'll send it to you. I'll send you a photo of it for sure. A lot of it is... Uh, is very appropriate. And I think, uh, you know, some of the, 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 the one thing that kind of sticks and comes out of it is, you know, just talking about, you know, just putting a path out there and, you know, kind of driving the results. I'm, uh, I don't know. I would, I, I like to say I'm a, I'm a very competitive person. You know, my, my wife or others may say I'm a very stubborn person. Um, but, uh, I, I think, uh, I think, you know, the other way you might say I'm just, I'm very strong will. Um, you know, it's, uh, anything can be done, you know, it's just, it's how you approach it. And just, you know, you can, you can, you can very much will things to happen, uh, in my mind. And it's just, it's, it's how much, you know, effort planning process strategy you put around it. You know, there are ways to, to get things done and it's, uh, you know, but you, you can't, uh, you can't procrastinate. You can't kind of dance around things. If you, you go at things head on, there's ways to get things done. So. I'm interested, actually, um, just in the story that you just told about going to Germany and, you know, kind of discovering the difference in maybe some of the cultural dynamics and finding good people in there. And sport is really, you know, interlaced all the time. You see in the NHL, like all the guys from Europe and the guys from all over the world. You see that in pro soccer now and most sports. Um, What have you learned about the human condition and multicultural sort of atmosphere. What is, what are some of the central thematics that you lean towards when you're leading people, even if they're from a different country or a different culture or a different place, what brings us together? I don't know if you understand my question when I sort of asked that. Um, no, I, I think so. Like from, from what I'm, what I hear you asking, I think like it's um, a, you know, you can't, um, you know, again, you know, as, as I do with most things, you know, I think you know, from a sports mind first, but, you know, you can't treat every player the same, 
you know, you're not going to get this, you know, results by treating every player the same. You need some, some players, again, some players you can, you can yell and scream at them and get results. Other people you yell and scream at them and they're just going to retract, mm-hmm. you know? So how do you, um, you know, how do you, how do you coach players to make sure that they're getting the most, you know, out of them on the field of play. And same thing from a business perspective is, you know, you got to treat everybody as, you know, you know, individuals and how they, you know, want to be motivated. You know, some, you just got let go some you got to hold back a little bit more um you know i think uh that's where i come back i think i referenced this earlier like three key things to me and you know you can apply it in certain ways to 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 anybody is you know just leading with a sense of trust transparency and empowerment is you know you know trusting you know you know the people in that that are around you you know establishing a level of trust that they trust trust you um you know largely through being transparent and just you know making sure that, you know, whether it's, they know what's working, what's not working, that, you know, they're aware of the environment and what's happening, but you know, the big one is just empowerment and, you know, providing that level of ownership and level of accountability to, to getting things done. You know, I think, um, you know, in our environment, you know, I, I, I feel, I think everybody feels like they play a part, mm-hmm. you know, and they've got a sense of ownership of things. You know, you know, they're not just a number and they're not just, you know, kind of running their, their part of things. Like they own a part of the business, you know, they know they're going to be held accountable to it, but that's, that's what they enjoy, you know, is, uh, is, is being a, an owner and a key piece of, um, of the puzzle. And, you know, leadership to me is not something that is, um, is based on hierarchy. It's not something that, you know, leaders don't, don't just sit at the top. There is a leadership is a mindset and, uh, it needs to be applied throughout the organization so that whether you're, you know, uh, you know, someone that's managing or leading a function, you know, whether you're leading marketing you know, or, or, or operations or whether you're, uh, you know, a week on the job and, you know, you know, in a customer service role, whatever it might be, you know, everybody has got to, you know, to take a leadership mindset to that because, you know, you've got someone coming in and say an entry level position that they've been on the job for a month, you know, they can come in and poke holes and maybe certain things that have, you know, been put in place and find better ways to do things. And, you know, if they don't say anything and they don't provide that point of view on it, well, it's not going to change things. And, you know, you're going to continue to doing doing things the way we always do did so you know having that point of view being able to share that stuff like that to me is leadership and it's it doesn't have to be at you know kind of the senior ranks of a of of a team it's it's the same as you know you have a rookie come in and you know they may not be the loudest you know person in the room but you know they may come in and be the hardest working and lead by example and you know help to you know to challenge and, and raise everybody else around them so um again i think um you know the leadership side of things is is something that I try to instill in, in, in anybody, uh, that's, that's working with me and making sure that they feel like they've got a, uh, that they're playing a part and they know that they're playing a part, uh, again, largely to just that, that level of trust, transparency and, and empowerment. You, you, uh, were connected to, or I was connected to you through Mark Fitzgerald, who's a performance coach like myself. And I'm curious just, uh, being sort of, in a different industry, but having been coached, having played sports, having been around sports with your, this brand, what, what have you noticed about the, the good and successful people in the human performance industry? Have you noticed a certain thematic in their character or thematic in the way they deport themselves that, that you recognize in in the ones that that you've seen have success? Um, yeah, I, I think so. I think it's, it probably is, it's back to just a, a mindset. And, um, you know, I think that we, I, I think, you know, that we, we tend to, tend to, to navigate to, you know, to, to like-minded people. Uh, and I know like when I, you know, like, like Fitzy, as you, you use the example, like, you know, again, he and I are, are very like-minded and just, you know, very, very business-minded, you know, kind of always on, always thinking about, you know, kind of what the next, you know, not the next thing, but what the next opportunity, the next, how do you, how do we, you know, how do we make change in order to feed the opportunity? And it's, um, it's kind of just this always on mindset. And, uh, um, I think there's another, another component of things where, um, I think I'm a very self-aware person and um i find those that are 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 self-aware i think you know tend to are able to navigate things uh, you know a little a little easier a little more clearly um whereas when you see people that maybe are a little less self-aware they you know they they hit a few few 
roadblocks along the way. Mm. Um, and not, not, not that, not that those that are self-aware myself that I haven't hit roadblocks, but how do you navigate through those roadblocks? Like how long does that roadblock stay up? Um, but just, you know, self-awareness is, uh, is something that is, is, uh, is, is, is something, again, I, I navigate to, to, to like-minded people, I think, because when I look at both key people or influential people in my life, there are some, some consistent attributes that I would see in myself as well as see in them, mm. um, you know, between self-awareness, just very much operating off of a, a strong will, um, you know, determination, um, you know, very leadership minded, very much, excuse me, mindful of those around them, not just mindful of yourself and mindful of, of those around you. Um, so I just, you know, I think that, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I seek that out or it's just, it's a natural thing that I just, I, I know that those that I spend most of my time with, those that I spend most of my time talking to, um, again, I think are, are very like-minded in, in, in how they approach I, don't, I would say business just because that's, you know, I'm, a, I'm an always on kind of guy when it, when it, when it comes to business. Um, so I just think it's yeah, just like-minded thought process Very and cool. purpose. Very cool. Last question. If you uh, bumped into yourself back in uh, Baltimore as a young uh, lacrosse playing college guy, what would you say to yourself? There was, there was something that, um, uh, again, as that, when I first started uh, at Under Armour, one of the guys that I worked with was a guy named Ryan Wood. Um, and he had said something to me that stuck with, has stuck with me. And, um, you know, I, I kind of kept it in my mind and I've, I've used it and kind of said the same thing to others, but, um, is just, uh, just be, and I wish I'd had this, you know, to think about this earlier on about stuff, uh, just be patient and never panic. Um, there's never, you know, the, the, there's never a reason to, you know, to, to panic and there to rush, you know, you know, better things come with patience and, um, you know, don't jump at doing the deal, you know, don't rush into something without all the, all, all, all the details. Don't panic if it's not happening fast enough. Like you can always, you know, you can always maneuver your way through things in the right way if needed, but um, pushing through things or, or doing things in a panicked way, you know, are, are going to feed, uh, more problems than, than anything, uh, I find. So I just, it's something that he had, he had said to me just in passing, which is just, you know, cause we were moving, you know, under armor has always been that at such fast pace that we were always just kind of on to the next thing, on to the next thing. And, you know, so many opportunities that came up, it was a case of, you know, how did we select those that we wanted to, to focus on and drive and, I just always remember he had said, just be patient, never panic. And that was just something that I've always, you know, kind of said to other people. I continue to say it to myself when, you know, when I get caught up in something, I'm just like, okay, hold on, take a step back. Let's just, you know, kind of reevaluate some things here and, you know, we'll figure out the best play forward and then we'll, 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 we'll run at that, you know, and, you know, something that, that Kevin's always said, um, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. We're just going to make full, you know, full speed mistakes and, um, you know, just continue to, you know, just, but make sure you have a, you know, a set path and then go and let's go quickly. Awesome. Good, good advice for what we're going through now. So <laughs> be patient yeah, yeah, and don't true. panic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, it's, it's uh, been a pleasure chatting with you, Matt, for an hour meeting you and uh, hopefully our paths will cross again another time. So thank you for your time. Likewise. Um, thanks again. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.